The following sermon was preached at Liberty Baptist Church. We exist to showcase the glory of God by being and making disciples of Jesus. To learn more about us, please visit our website at lbcliberty.org. says this, They came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. And again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and rise again after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now and we ask for your help. Lord, we know that the preaching of the word is how you equip and train your people to rightly understand scripture. I pray that you would be with us this morning as we hear from Mark. I pray that you would open our eyes to truly see Christ and that he would be always glorious to us. Lord, please help me now. In Jesus' name, amen. James Armistead Lafayette is a name that few people would recognize today. However, his role in the American Revolutionary War is very noteworthy. James was an African-American slave who volunteered to fight on the colonial side during the Revolution under the command of Marquis de Lafayette. His primary role was to be a spy and courier for the colonists. He posed as a runaway slave and served the infamous General Benedict Arnold, who later defected to the British. Because of his role as a servant, James was often present when the British were discussing highly important military plans. James would relay the British information to his general, Lafayette, almost daily. Later, James would eventually serve Lord Cornwallis, who was the commander of the British forces in the south. Once again, James overheard valuable information and passed it on to his continental general, Lafayette. Perhaps the most important instance of this was when James overheard Lord Cornwallis' plans to dig in at Yorktown. James relayed this information to his general, who then relayed it to George Washington. Washington then devised the famous plan to surround the British at Yorktown by land and by sea, which resulted in the last major battle of the Revolutionary War. The reason I tell you this story is that it illustrates a significant point for us this morning. Misunderstanding someone's true identity can have massive ramifications. In our text this morning, we are going to see that what was true for James Armistead Lafayette 
was also true of Jesus during his ministry. He was largely misunderstood. While Jesus was living and teaching, the very ones that should have been expecting him, the Jews, were the ones who rejected him and turned him over to be crucified. Even worse, during Jesus' ministry, his own disciples spent the most intimate time with him. They completely misunderstood why he came. And if we're not careful, we might be doing the exact same thing today. Our text this morning lays out for us what it means to truly know Christ. But before we jump into our text, we have to take into account where our text is situated in the uh, Gospel of Mark. The first seven chapters of Mark's Gospel are clearly displaying Jesus' great authority. He is healing the sick and the leprous. He is casting out demons. He is doing numerous miracles. And he is even proclaiming to have the authority to forgive sin. You can almost hear the people observing these things ask, who can this be? And then there is a shift in Mark's gospel. Jesus, in a sense, turns his face to Jerusalem and embarks upon the way journey. Mark 8, chapters 10, or Mark chapter 8, verse 22 through 1052 is typically referred to as the way discourse. The reason it is called that is because there's a few places in these chapters where it's said that they were embarking on the way. And then after Jesus heals the second blind man, he follows Jesus on the way. Your version may translate the way as road. Throughout these three chapters, that is Mark 8 through 10, Jesus and his disciples make their way to Jerusalem. And as they do, a pattern develops. Jesus predicts his death and resurrection in Jerusalem. The disciples misunderstand, and then Jesus corrects them. This happens three times in these three chapters. The, the theme of misunderstanding is repeatedly emphasized. What is more, Mark bookends or sandwiches these three passion predictions, the three predictions of Jesus' death, with two stories of blind men being healed. They form a sandwich on this discourse. He does this intentionally to illustrate something that the disciples are still partially blind. Mark is wanting his readers to understand that it is absolutely essential to rightly understand who Jesus is. Which brings us to our text this morning. In Mark 8, 22 through 33, we are going to see three necessities that every person must embrace if they are to truly know Christ. If you do not understand these three necessities, then there is a great chance you will continue in your life just like the disciples' life in our text, misunderstanding who Jesus was. So let me ask you, who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Do you understand Jesus largely by what others have told you? Or do you understand Jesus as he has revealed himself in his word? As we move forward, let me caution you. Misunderstanding the identity of a slave like James Armistead Lafayette can lose a war and alter history. But misunderstanding the identity of the crucified and risen Lord will lead to judgment and suffering for all eternity. It is vital this morning for us to understand this. Therefore, let's examine these three necessities that we must embrace if we are to know Christ truly. First, we must embrace the necessity of new eyes in order to see Christ. We must embrace the necessity of new eyes in order to truly see Christ. As we just read, Jesus and his disciples come to Bethsaida, which was located on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. 
Some people bring a blind man to him, and they want Jesus to touch him, to heal him. Once Jesus leads a blind man out of the village, he proceeds to heal him. But Jesus does something peculiar in this healing that reveals to us what is truly going on. First, he spits on the man's eyes. And second, he heals him in two stages. Why does Jesus use his saliva, and why does Jesus not heal him instantly? Some commentators talk about how saliva was used in the first century in medical and magical practices. But do we really think that Jesus was concerned with the latest medical theories or concerned that matter for that matter of using magic to heal? Well, no. Most, ple- most people would rightly deny this. But then what is actually going on here? In the first century, saliva was a common sign of disgrace and disgust. If you wanted to offend or shock someone, you could spit. But why would Jesus want to shock his disciples with this gross gesture? It is likely that Jesus spit in the man's face to symbolically represent the shock that was about to come to his disciples when he predicts his death for the first time. The same way that spitting in the man's face would have been shocking and disturbing is the same way that the disciples will feel when Jesus says that the Messiah will suffer. They are not expecting Jesus to die. If a Jew in the first century would have heard that the Messiah was going to be crucified, they would have laughed and mocked. If the Messiah was crucified, then in the Jews' mind, he must not have really been the Messiah after all. Therefore, Jesus tells his disciples that he will suffer and die, and it is shocking and incomprehensible. It would have been a slap in the face, or in this context, it would have been a spit in the face. The second question was, why does Jesus heal the man in two stages? Jesus asked the blind man after touching him the first time, do you see anything? Why did Jesus not just heal him instantly? Was Jesus somehow deficient in his healing power in this moment? Well, of course not. It was deliberate. Jesus performed this miracle in two stages in order to illustrate something significant about the disciples. They are partially blind. At this particular point in Jesus' ministry, they are just like the blind man, able to see partially after Jesus' initial touch. The blind man's vision was blurry. He could see people, but they looked as trees walking. Similarly, the disciples could see Jesus as the Messiah, but their understanding of what that really meant, namely the nature of his Messiahship, was still fuzzy. The very next verses describe Peter confessing Christ as the Messiah, in one moment, and then being called Satan in the next because he did not understand what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. Their understanding wasn't complete. In the same way that fuzzy vision was not acceptable for the blind man is the same way that fuzzy understanding of who Jesus truly is is not acceptable for followers of Jesus. This passage is littered with words associated with sight. There's eight to be exact. The fact that Mark uses eight different words for sight is significant because he is implicitly stressing the importance of seeing clearly. Therefore, Jesus uses his saliva and he heals the man in two stages in order to illustrate that the disciples are blind to who he truly is. Have you ever wondered why Jesus consistently silences the demons and those he heals when they confess his true identity? Or why immediately after, he tells the, after Peter's confession, he tells the disciples to tell no one. Has that ever troubled you before? This is known as the messianic secret. 
As I mentioned earlier, it was because they did not understand what it meant for him to truly be the Messiah. They had other expectations for him. And if Jesus would have openly endorsed their praise as Messiah, he would have been endorsing their misunderstanding. That is why in the verses we just read, Jesus leads the man out of the village, and then he warns him not to go back in. The true nature of his Messiahship has not quite been fully revealed yet. And it won't be fully grasped until he is crucified, resurrected, and comes to his disciples to explain. The disciples needed their vision of Jesus to be cleared up the same way the blind man did after the first touch. And the same is true for us today. We, in our sinful state without Christ, cannot rightly understand who he is. We may have our own conception of of who Jesus was. Maybe he was a nice man to you. Maybe he was a really good teacher. Maybe he was a really ethical teacher. But we must have clear vision to understand who he truly is, and that can only come from God himself giving us eyes to see. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 through 6, it says this, In their case, that is, those who are perishing, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Until God removes your blinders and shines his light in your heart so that you can see his glory in the face of Jesus Christ, you will never truly understand who Jesus is. Before the blinders are removed, you and me are just like the blind man before he met Jesus. Blind and hopeless. It's like someone walking around with a massive tumor and they don't even know it. They are going on with life as they know it, completely unaware that death is just around the corner. It is not until the image of the MRI scan is placed in the light that the tumor becomes apparent. Similarly, it is only when our eyes are opened that we are truly able to see our need for Christ. God, in his mercy, shines his light in our hearts and says, Behold my son, and we are struck. We not only see our need for Christ, but we also see what he has done to satisfy our need. But not only that, we also see Christ himself truly. We are able to see how glorious he truly is. And once you see him with new eyes, You need nothing else. You are satisfied with the glory of Christ. So I have to ask you, have you truly seen Christ? Have you marveled at his amazing grace? Have you seen the beauty of the cross? Because if you have not been given new eyes to see, the cross will not be beautiful to you. It will be folly. But if you have been given new eyes, the cross will be a glorious reality to you. If this doesn't seem to describe you, then what you need is sight. You need the blinders removed. And the good news is that Jesus is still healing people's vision today. Much like how he healed the blind man, he continues to heal blind men, women, and children every day all over the globe. Cry out to him today for sight. And if you have seen him with new eyes, and I assume that describes most of us here today, then praise him anew this morning for the grace he has given to you with new eyes. And don't stop there, but think of those in your life that still have the blinders on. Beg and plead with God to give them new vision. 
which leads to our second necessity. We must embrace the necessity of personally confessing Christ. We must embrace the necessity of personally confessing Christ. Before Jesus and his disciples made their way to Jerusalem, they first go north to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was an important Gentile city in the first century located north of the Sea of Galilee. It sat about 25 miles north of Bethsaida, which would have made this journey at least a full day's walk. We have to ask the question, why would Jesus, before going south to Jerusalem, first go north 25 miles? And not only go north, but also go into pagan Gentile territory. It's because Jesus wanted to talk with his disciples about his true identity. This was, goes back to the messianic secret that we talked about earlier. Jesus was frequently silencing those who knew his identity because the nature of his messiahship was not clearly revealed. Therefore, in order to talk to his disciples in a non-Jewish or a non-Messiah expectant place, it would have eliminated any extra hysteria associated with the conversation. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he is widely known, particularly in the Galilean countryside, for his miraculous works and authoritative teaching. People have been marveling at his ministry, which led them to question who he actually was. In light of this, Jesus questions his disciples about what people were saying about him. He first asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? In response, they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. Why did some people think that Jesus was John the Baptist? Earlier in Mark, Herod had John the Baptist put to death. When Jesus had become known because of his miracles and authoritative teaching, it was rumored that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. And at first, to most readers, myself included, this doesn't appear to be a legitimate possibility because Jesus and John the Baptist's ministries overlapped. However, one commentator helpfully points out that those who started this particular rumor or this particular identity, they said that he said that they may not have heard of Jesus before Jesus' arrest or execution. Others said that Jesus was the Old Testament prophet Elijah. In Judaism during this time, there was much hearsay about the return of Elijah. This was largely due to a couple of particular texts in the Old Testament, namely Malachi 3.1, which says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And Malachi 4, 5, and 6 says, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." So based on these verses, it was a commonly held belief that Elijah must precede the Lord in coming. This belief is expressed a few verses later in our chapter, in our uh, gospel, in Mark 9, 11. The disciples asked Jesus, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? In response, Jesus affirms that indeed Elijah must come, but that he has already come in John the Baptist. The last potential identity the disciples have heard from the people is that Jesus could be one of the prophets. More than likely, when, Jesus, uh, when the people identified Jesus as one of the prophets, what they had in mind was not just another prophet, but the prophet from Deuteronomy 18.15, which says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is to him whom you shall listen. Most of the people in Israel had been long expecting this prophet, the final prophet, to come. It had been 400 years since the last prophet was in the people of Israel. 
eschatological or end-time expectations were high. And it is no wonder that this was a common thought among those who heard and saw Jesus. Jesus actually identifies himself as a prophet in Mark 6, 4. He says to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And then later in Acts 3, 17 through 26, Peter identifies Jesus as the prophet from Deuteronomy 18, 15. It is right, therefore, for Jesus to be called a prophet and to interpret him as fulfilling Deuteronomy 18, 15. So in some sense, the people that were saying Jesus was the prophet or one of the prophets, they were correct in some sense. But if that is all that is said, if you stop there and Jesus is just a prophet, you have not said enough. After asking the disciples who the people thought he was, Jesus now asks the pointed and much more important question, who do you say that I am? He shifts from popular opinion and zeroes in on the disciples' conclusions about him. The use of but at the beginning of Jesus' question hints that the disciples' answer is in contrast to the three previously mentioned. In the Greek text, when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? The you is doubly emphatic. It is emphatic in the first place because the pronoun is not necessary in the sentence. In the original language, the subject often included the verb. So when an author uses a personal pronoun in addition to the verb, it can be used for emphasis. The reason it is doubly emphatic is because of word order. The pronoun is the first word in Jesus's question. Moving a word to the beginning of a sentence or clause was another way to strongly emphasize something. It is almost as if Jesus points directly at his disciples and says, I've heard what they've been saying, but you, who do you say that I am? And this is the question that echoes down through the ages. Who do you say that Jesus is? It is one thing to listen to and explain other people's opinions about various matters. However, it is quite another to have an intentional and informed personal conviction about something or someone. It is not uncommon in our churches today for youth to claim to be Christians simply because they were raised in the church. Their mom is a Christian, their dad is a Christian, their grandparents are Christians. Therefore, in their minds, they are Christians. In fact, this was true for myself most of my life. Yet if one does not have personal faith in Christ, if one has not personally repented and trusted in Christ's death and resurrection, then their faith is borrowed. And borrowed faith is no faith at all. While the Christian faith is undoubtedly meant to be lived out in community, it fundamentally exists of individual believers who have personally confessed faith in Christ. No one will be able to stand before the Lord in judgment and escape justice on the basis of someone else's faith. Ultimately for you, Jesus is not concerned with what other people think, but with what you think. Who do you say that he is? Some fellow students and I frequently visit a local community college throughout the week to share the gospel with college students. We set up a table in their cafeteria and we put a sign on it that says, who was the historical Jesus? As students pass, we seek to engage them, ask them this question to have a gospel conversation. We get a variety of answers, some good, some not so good, some funny, some not so funny. One day recently, I met a young man and we had a pretty good conversation When they asked who he thought Jesus was, he said, the son of God. And I said, amen, I agree. That's a good answer. That sounds like you're a Christian. He said, yeah, of course, I was raised in the church. 
I said, oh, okay. And I asked him where he went to church. And he said, oh, this church right down the road. But then he told me that he hadn't been in a while. So I asked him if he could explain the gospel to me, and he couldn't. It turns out the more we talked, the more it became evident that this young man had a borrowed faith. He had some right answers to begin with, but whenever it was explored a little bit further, his faith was actually not his own. If Jesus were to ask him the question, who do you say that I am? He would be found utterly wanting. What about you? How do you answer Jesus's question? It is perhaps the most important question you could ever answer. Peter, back in our text, boldly answers, you are the Christ. The word Christ could also be translated as Messiah. The title Messiah literally just means anointed one. The title originally could have been applied to anybody anointed by God, such as prophets, priests, or kings. In Judaism during this time, messianic expectations were diverse. That is, different groups of Jews believed different things about the coming deliverer, also known as the Messiah. One group of Jews called the Sadducees are typically thought to have rejected the idea of Messiah altogether. They were not expecting a coming deliverer. Another group of Jews called the Qumran community believed that there would be one, uh, more than one Messiah to appear at the end times. They believed in two Messiahs to come. Most common Jews, however, believed that the Messiah would be a political figure, a king-like leader who would deliver the people from bondage and corruption. More than likely, that is what Peter had in mind when he confessed, you are the Christ. In his mind, Jesus was the conquering king who was about to deliver his people from oppression and affliction. This is not to say that Peter was completely wrong. The fact that Jesus is the Christ is true. But Peter responded with the correct answer, and as was discussed earlier, his understanding of that answer was not yet complete. He had a partial or fuzzy understanding of what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ, which emphasizes that we must, must not only personally confess Christ, but we must personally confess Christ accurately. That leads to our third and final necessity. We must embrace the necessity of a suffering Savior. Right after Peter, Peter's proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus sets, excuse me, sets out to teach his disciples the true nature of his Messiahship. He tells them in verse 31 that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and to be killed and to rise again after three days. As mentioned before, this would have been utterly shocking and incomprehensible for the disciples. You can almost see the disciples saying, wait a minute, Jesus. It sounds like you just said that you're about to suffer and die. Is this another one of your parables that we don't understand? But there would have been no confusion when Jesus spoke this because the text says that Jesus was speaking this message plainly or boldly. It would have uh, not been wrong uh, for them to misunderstand Jesus. The word used for rebuke here when Peter rebukes Jesus is a very strong word. This wasn't a simple, hey, um, Jesus, I don't know if you know this or not, but you're actually supposed to conquer and reign, so just saying. No, this would have been a strong confrontation. This would have been a much more aggressive, initiated rebuke by Peter. It was more like, by no means must you suffer and die, Jesus. In response to Peter's strong rebuke, Jesus uses the very same word and issues a strong rebuke right back. He says in verse 33, get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Peter goes from a seeming place of honor to be the first person to confess Jesus as the Christ 
to being called Satan by the Christ. Why did Jesus call Peter Satan? Some have tried to argue that since the word Satan can mean opponent, that Jesus was just saying, get behind me, you who oppose me. But Satan has already been repeatedly identified in Mark's gospel as the enemy of God. Therefore, it is more likely that when Jesus calls Peter Satan, he actually means Satan. So again, why does Jesus call Peter Satan? It is because Peter is wanting Jesus to do exactly what Satan wanted Jesus to do, namely to achieve a crown without a cross. Remember back in Matthew 4 when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Satan takes Jesus to a mountaintop and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And then he says to Jesus, all these I will give you if you just bow and worship me. Now you may have wondered before, why is that such a temptation for Jesus? The reason this is such a temptation is because Jesus knows the reason he came. He came to seek and to save the lost a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And he is going to do that by suffering and dying in their place. But Satan is offering him that same end, namely the nations, without the suffering. In effect, he is saying to Jesus, you see all these nations that you've come for? I'll give them to you, and all you have to do is bow the knee. No suffering, no cross, painless. Doesn't that sound good, Jesus? And when Peter rebukes Jesus, he is communicating the exact same thing. No, Jesus, you you are supposed to conquer and reign, dying on a cross? That will never happen to you. No suffering, no cross, painless. This was the thinking of men and not the thinking of God. In our depravity, we want the greatest possible power with the least possible resistance. And this is why the prosperity gospel is a scheme of the devil. It gives sinful men exactly what they want. Who doesn't naturally want ease, good health, financial prosperity? But at the end of the day, the chant of those who preach for the prosperity gospel sounds awfully familiar. No suffering, no cross, painless. These words are a reproach on the true gospel. We are actually told in the next verses to, if we want to follow Jesus, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him on a path of suffering. But Jesus knew why he came. He knew that he must suffer in order to fulfill his mission. Notice that Jesus didn't just say the Messiah will suffer, but he must suffer. Mark uses a little particle that is often translated, it is necessary that stresses that Jesus' suffering that he's talking about is not a possibility, but it's actually a guarantee. This little bitty particle is used to describe the divine prerogative of God. Throughout church history, a prominent topic among theologians and critics alike has been who killed Jesus. Are the Jews to blame? Are the Romans? Jesus, in our text, attributes it to the Jewish leaders. He says the elders, the chief priests, and the experts of the law. While both the Jews and the Romans had a part to play, Jesus' death is very clear in Scripture that they were actually carrying out the plan of God. Acts 4, 27-28 says this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. 
In other words, Jesus' death at the hands of the Jews and the Romans was not a mistake. Rather, it was purposed and carried out according to the divine plan of God. Which raises the question, why would God plan and predestine for his son to suffer like this? It was necessary because the divine son of God is the only solution to humanity's problem before a holy God. God purposed before the foundation of the world to save sinners, and his plan was to send his son to die in their place as their substitute. Paul summarizes this well in 2 Corinthians when he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because of God's great love for fallen humanity, it was necessary that the Messiah suffer. You might be thinking, well, why? Why is it necessary? Why can't he just forgive us and let it go? Why does he have to hold the grudge? After all, I'm not that bad anyways. And that line of thinking completely misunderstands who God is and who you are before God. God is holy and righteous, and a holy and righteous God cannot just sweep sin under the rug. That would contradict his own character. What would you think of an earthly judge who pardons a murderer just because he felt remorseful and apologized? That would be an unjust judge. He would not be a good judge. If the judge were to let him go and the murderer did not face his punishment, then he would cease to be good and righteous. Likewise, in a much higher way, God is just and good, and therefore, he must give you exactly what you deserve. Second, to think that you aren't that bad misunderstands who who you are before this holy God. The problem with that line of thinking is that it compares your life with those around you. And it is not that hard to watch the news and feel pretty good about yourself. There's a bunch of crazy people doing a bunch of crazy things. And after all, you can easily say, well, I'm not as bad as that person. I haven't done that. But on judgment day, our lives will not be compared to other people around us. You will be compared to perfection. How do you think you will fare versus perfection? This is our dilemma. God is holy and we are far from it. So how can God be just and still forgive sins? Because what we're ultimately professing here is that you can repent of your sins and trust Christ and be forgiven completely. No more sin, no more reproach, no more condemnation. Well, if that's the case, how can God still be just? The answer is Jesus. Our sin was paid for. So God sent his son to come to us, to live a perfect life in our place so that he would be the perfect substitute for us. When Jesus died on the cross, he literally took our place. The wrath of God that we deserved was poured out on him. In other words, he took your hell on himself. After dying for sins, he rose from the grave three days later, conquering sin and death. And now he calls people everywhere to repent, to turn from sin and self, and to trust Jesus and his death and resurrection. This is the good news that we gather for today. God determined to send his son to pursue you, to give you eyes to see so that you could see your need for Christ. You could see Christ himself. You could turn from sin and self and trust him. And the good news, once again, is that that is true now. If you're here and you don't know Christ, call out to him. Repent from your sins. Turn to him. He will have full pardon. 
Not only will you have full pardon, it's not just a get out of hell free card, but your eyes will be open to the greatest treasure you could ever behold. God himself becomes your father and you a son, an inheritor. In C.S. Lewis's iconic book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, one of the main characters named Edmund betrays the forces of good and gives aid to the wicked white witch. (laughs) Excuse me. Even though Edmund later regrets this decision, once he was under the white witch's control, there was nothing Edmund could do. Aslan, the mighty lion leader of the forces of good, meets with the white witch to negotiate Edmund's release. After some time passes, Aslan and the white witch emerge from their private meeting tent. Edmund's release is announced, and the forces of good rejoice. But what they don't realize is that Edmund and his release did not come at a small price. Aslan agreed to be sacrificed on the stone table in exchange for the release of Edmund. Aslan must die to free Edmund. There was no other way. Edmund could not have been released apart from Aslan's sacrifice. And in a similar way, there was no other way from you and me to be free from the law, sin, death, and Satan, except for Jesus to suffer in our place. Mark 8, 22-33 teaches us that we must have new eyes to truly see Jesus, that we must personally confess him as Lord, and that we must profess him accurately as the suffering Savior. The British army at the end of the Revolutionary War was completely horrified when the true identity of James Armistead Lafayette was revealed. They marveled and thought, how could we have been so blind to who he truly was? Likewise, when Jesus returns and he is no longer veiled to our physical eye, there will be many who are completely horrified and they too will cry out, how could we have been so blind to who he truly was? I pray that is not the case for any of us here this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we are grateful for who you are. Lord, we recognize our utter dependence upon you that we have nothing good in ourselves, but that we need you. Lord, thank you for pursuing us. Thank you for giving us eyes to see who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, I pray that our church would be unified in this gospel and that we would proclaim it to our neighbors, our family, and everyone we meet. Praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.